Welcome to the In the Oil Patch radio show, broadcasting from the SR Trident studio. SR Trident, where safety is a culture, not just a word. In the Oil Patch radio show with Kimball Auto is where you will hear the latest in the oil, gas, and energy industry from a wide variety of industry experts, elected officials, and more, right here on In the Oil Patch radio show. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We'll be joined by Gary Cruzy from Arbo. I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. The cover story is Heidi Gill, the CEO of Urban Solutions. What an amazing company, and she's doing amazing things, her and her company in Colorado. Be sure to visit shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com to read all about Heidi and Urban Solutions. I'd also like to tell you about a new date set for our State of Energy with Shell Magazine 2022 that is coming to the Houston Club downtown on April 21st, starting at 11.30 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, as well as featured moderator, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Sean Strawbridge. The panelists will include Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior Vice President of Liquid Pipeline for Enbridge, and Bruce Fullenweider, the Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets on State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, please see, please go to shellmagticketleap.com backslash state of energy. That's shellmag.ticketleap.com backslash state of energy. And we will see you there. And now it's time for me to welcome on my co-host, and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in the oil patch. It sure is, and I'm very excited uh, to talk to you and catch up with you about the post-delivery uh, of President Biden's State of the Union, in which um, there was some troubling signs for the energy sector. So let's get started with oil prices. They exploded this week. Um, as the market responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and prices, of course, um, they're, they're pretty high right now. But is this a crazy high? Yeah. <laughs> crazy high. And, and you know what was crazy is the moment that he was going, uh, you know, President Biden's State of the Union, globally, the markets responded in oil by going up by $5 just within yeah. that speech. During so, the speech, how, yes. Yeah. During the speech, yes. So talk to me about. Is this temporary? Uh, well, we'll start with the Ukraine and uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine. Is if this subsides, do can we see it return to normal, or is there just too much happening yeah. globally that the uncertainty is just there, uh, especially with our administration, and it's going to last a lot longer? Yeah, you know, I, and we've talked about this. I mean, we, you know, we, back in January, we were saying we would have hundred dollar oil by March first. And we did. And, you know, and that was just due to normal market forces, uh, a, a, a continuing rising, rapidly rising demand for crude. And uh, a lot of countries in OPEC plus uh, having no capacity left to produce anymore. Uh, the Biden administration hampering the industry here in the United States. Um, and, you know, even Russia had pretty much peaked with its production. Uh, mm -hmm. really before this year even started at about 11 million barrels a day. And, and so we were going to see higher oil prices regardless. What's happened with Ukraine is 
it's added a premium on top of the $100 oil we would have seen anyway. And, you know, a 10 to $15 a barrel premium because of the situation in Ukraine. Um, but I will say this, I, and, and again, we've talked about this. You know, I, I, I think uh, I also said in January, I expected we would see $125 oil uh, before summer right. starts, right? That's right. And, and again, that was just due to the situation in the market as it existed before this tragedy in Ukraine. So um, even after this is over and assuming this goes quickly, you, assuming all these sanctions that are being put on Russia, you know, are slowly uh, rescinded, um, you, you're still going to have a situation where the world isn't producing enough oil and governments like the Biden administration and Germany and, and other European governments are artificially holding back their own oil production. And, and, and so you're, you know, we're just not uh, going to be able to meet demand uh, and there's gonna be a shortage and it's a structural shortage uh, because we haven't invested enough in finding new reserves since 2015 because of these ESG investor groups denying capital to the industry. Right. So it, it just, it's gonna be a long-term thing. We're gonna have years of high oil prices unless, and, and, and this is the alternative. The alternative is worse. The alternative is a global economic recession. And if you have a recession, demand will go down and oil prices will go down. But we don't want to have a recession. So I, you know, it's, it's just a bad situation all around. And it's because it's all attributable to these terrible, stupid energy policy decisions made by Western governments and ESG investor groups. So if you want somebody to blame, point your fingers at the right targets. Yep. And I'm sorry, but, you know, it, this, the Democratic Party is the main um, culprit to pushing this agenda on the American people anyway. And, um, you know, you've got to wonder if you, um, I don't think any of us sit and say, we don't believe in climate change and we're not climate deniers, but obviously life gets really horrible for the most indigent of the population when we have to have and deal with the situation at hand right now with of energy. And, yeah. and there's real consequences for that too. People die too. And in other countries that are not as fortunate as the United States, we will see this because they have they lack the energy resources. That's um, for sure. Let's switch gears and talk about another you know big problem that has happened in the energy markets globally. BP, Shell, and ExxonMobil all announced this week that they would be pulling out of various investments and partnerships in Russia. Um, and depending on where you're sitting, uh, Russia not so good. I don't know how <laughs> how, how to view this, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's good with our energy crisis on one hand it's good right. for Russia. they you know pulled them back a little bit but uh how does that affect the rest of us and most importantly how does it affect the oil supply situation and chain well it's going to make it worse i mean it's just going to put even more upward pressure on prices because what's happened since the fall of the soviet union is these big companies and it's not just BP Shell and ExxonMobil, it's, it's other, you know, uh, Total and, and other international companies have invested billions of dollars in, you know, with these Russian oil companies 
in partnerships in various pr production and refining and, and even LNG export uh, projects more recently. So you've had this infusion of, of Western world capital into the Russian economy to, to encourage production, oil production in that country. And now all of that capital is going to be coming out of Russia. And what's that going to mean? Well, it's going to mean their oil industry is going to be depressed. It's going to be lacking in capital, just as America's industry has been lacking in capital. And that means their production will go down and prices will go up. And, and that's just a consequence of, of this war. And, you know, I think the companies are doing the right thing. But, I mean, it's just one more uh, piece of pressure, pressure point, putting uh, upwards pressure on prices. Very interesting. Uh, let's start talking about uh, the State of the Union uh, speech. Yeah. That President Biden, Biden administration. Now, uh, Joe Biden promised to keep doubling down on this Green New Deal with more subsidies <laughs> yeah. for renewables. And, and, and the crazy thing to me was the way he touted these electric vehicles and, and yeah. how we're going to go electric. <laughs> how, when, when does this administration <laughs> figure well, out even... I mean, the talking points, whoever wrote that script couldn't have been more off. Yeah. And and he was he, he really missed the mark on reassuring the American people anything about the situation right now here at home with the economy, the recession that's occurring or or I wouldn't say recession, but what is happening here with us. And right. then, of course, the energy market. So how 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 far off was he with his State of the Union when it comes to oil and gas? Well, it's just terrible. I mean, you know, uh, think about the whole thing about uh, electric vehicles. Elon Musk said last September that you're going to have to double, double the amount of electricity produced in the United States only to recharge electric vehicles if the Biden administration meets this goal. Okay. That's well, just. Say that again, as I know there's some you, listeners who can understand right. that. So in other words, electric to, vehicles still need oil and gas, which is fine. Right, because <laughs> you're going to have to have gas and coal. That's that's how you double capacity on the grid. That's so right. it's just it's crazy. It's nutty. Crazy it's math. Just, right, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's not math at all. It's just it's just political talking points. You notice he didn't say a word about Tesla. Why didn't he talk about Tesla, which is investing three times? what Ford and GM combined are investing because Tesla doesn't have union labor. Okay. That's why he only talks about Ford and GM. And so it's just, it's all political nonsense and none of it's going to happen like they say it will. And it's, it's really not even possible, frankly, physically possible. And I wonder how come the media didn't actually put, call him out and say, well, how do we get here? Like if we're going to increase all of well, first of all, no one, unless you're making a really high income, can afford can afford an electric vehicle. Much less get down the road of how are you going to charge that vehicle? And this is where what you just said comes into play. Well, you still need oil and gas, folks, to create the vehicle, to run the vehicle, to keep your lights on in your house. So, how does all this stuff go away? And how in the world do we get to this amount? We're not anywhere near this. These the amount of cars he said he was going to put on the road was another situation, but it, it didn't make sense at all. It didn't it's, make sense at all. Yeah, no, it's all a fantasy. Wow. And that was the State of the Union that he delivered. Well, David, uh, interesting times we're living in, but um, 
Coming up, when we get back from break, we will be joined by Gary Cruzy from Arbo. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a veteran-owned and operated industrial construction company. Established in 2012 by co-founders Stephen Snyder and Ryan Berthold, SR Trident has positioned itself as an expert in the industrial construction sector. With mounting business expansions, they've assembled a team of skilled, experienced, and able individuals who are dedicated to meeting client needs as they evolve. SR Trident's safety record is impeccable as they've won a number of awards, including the ABC National Safety Excellence Award in 2020. With exceptional leadership and experience driving their gains, SR Trident can tackle any project and are ready to let their talent be the driving force in the energy industry. Call today, 361-776-2662 or visit online at srtrident.com to request a bid proposal today. And now, David, it's time to welcome on our guest, Gary Cruzy. Gary, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you very much for having us today. Well, you are new to our show, so let's begin by talking a little bit about you represent, you're the Managing Director of Research at ARBO. So for our listeners, tell us a little bit about the company itself, and then, of course, how did you get started with them? How did you lead into being the Managing Director? Sure. Well, Arbo is an energy business technology company, and we provide software and analytics to pipelines, marketers, and traders for making commercial decisions, um, project development decisions, and regulatory risk management. Um, What we do is we gather publicly available data and provide it through either software presentations or analysis that allows energy industry participants to make better data-driven decisions. Um, uh, what I, my background personally is I spent 30 years practicing law, um, eight years of that, the last eight years of that was as the general counsel for an interstate gas pipeline. I joined Arbo about five years ago um, to help meld that industry knowledge that I brought um, with the data to help our clients navigate the energy evolution. Um, It's kind of a great position for me. My undergraduate degree was in math, so I get to work with a lot of data, but also uh, overlay that with the legal uh, background I have. Perfect. So you come with a lot of experience um, for Arbo. Let's, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about a term, energy transition, that we hear so much of. It really reflects everything that's happening in the energy sector right now. But you prefer to use the term energy evolution. Tell me why uh, your reasoning behind it, the evolution versus the transition. Yeah, we just think the transition, the word transition implies that you're leaving something behind you as you transition to a new environment or something. And we believe that climate change is a a problem that will take an all of the above approach. And so really what's going to happen is the existing players and the new players are going to need to evolve. Um, the, The challenge requires not only paradigm shifts, but also incremental improvements in all areas of energy, energy production, I think. 
that's not exactly consistent with the narrative around this transition, is it? I mean, uh, when you when you see messaging on television or TV ads or, you know, uh, John Kerry, Al Gore talking about all this, uh, it, the concept is, well, we're just going to get rid of fossil fuels and replace them all with these pretty windmills and solar panels and and there will just be all the, you know, no emissions at all and, and everybody's going to be happy. But that's really not even possible physically, is it? Well, we certainly don't think so. And we, we believe the uh, International Energy Agency agrees. Um, in a recent study they did, they described their path forward, which is an all of the above path as the only one that's politically and uh, economically really feasible to achieve net zero by 2050. And, and it requires things that the group we call the environmental purists, which are those that advocate for just wind, solar, and batteries like you just described as being the only solution. Um, the reason we don't think that will work is there are a number of areas of the economy that simply cannot be easily converted to those. Plus, you have uh, you do have transitions or evolutions that require uh, continued use of the fossil fuels for a much longer period of time than I think uh, those purists would like to accept. So, yeah. uh, no, you, we, we don't think it's really possible, but it's certainly not economically and politically. And maybe also, Gary, we should mention that there, it's not possible to create these wind turbines, solar panels, or even batteries without using fossil fuels to create them. So the whole point is, I think what you said, we need them all. Uh, most definitely, but you can't achieve those without specifically using oil and gas. And it's a, uh, it's something that rarely ever gets pointed out to them, of how, uh, in in some ways, the notion that you can do this without it gets left out of the conversation totally. And, <laughs> and it needs to be said, uh, quite frankly. Yeah. So how much how much do these things before we go to break, how much of these uh, wind turbines, solar panels and especially these batteries require oil and gas to create them? I wouldn't know that answer, to be quite honest, but I would think, um, you know, just the mining and uh, of the minerals and things like that would it would be a substantial portion of them that requires some type of. Uh, you know, uh, energy source that um, probably is uh, liquid or gas based, I would say. Yeah, yeah. All the and, giant and trucks and everything. And yeah, the power tools that are used to break up the rock. And then, then you have the processing phase that consumes so much energy, you know, just from the power grid, right. which, you know, in China, where most of the processing happens is, is, is fired by coal power, frankly. And, uh, so it's, yeah, there's a huge carbon footprint there, obviously. Because I was actually going to also mention, you know, the, the the wind turbines also only have a life expectancy of what, 10 years, 12 years. We were talking about this in the last show that, you know, where are we burying these wind turbines when they finally go to wind turbine heaven? What happens to them? And they're not recyclable. <laughs> and, you know, so it's just, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dumb conversation to not have 
when we when we talk about how we're going to have this evolution and we're just going to live off of these wonderful renewables, if you will. We need them all. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, I want to get back on the topic of energy transition and what the whole meaning is. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a proud sponsor of State of Energy 2022 is coming to the Houston Club in downtown Houston on Thursday, April 21st, starting at 1130 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, and will feature moderator Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the Porta Corpus Christi, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior VP of Liquid Pipelines Enbridge, and Bruce Fullen, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets for the State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. Sponsored in part by SR Trident. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm David Blackman with my co-host Kim Bellotto and our special guest today, Gary Cruzy with Arbo. Gary, um, when we look at, you know, we, the world, the United States and the world have gone through a series of energy transitions. Over the last couple of hundred years, we went from wood to coal, for example. We went from coal to oil, coal to natural gas. And now we're talking about going from coal to wind turbines and solar panels. Um, but, but in reality, when you look back at that first transition from, from burning wood to heat our homes and cook our food, to moving to this more energy dense resource of coal, uh, last year in 2021, didn't we still uh, globally burn almost as much wood for power generation as we ever have in history? Well, certainly, I would say the view of, again, the environmental purists is a very uh, Euro-American-centric view yeah. and does not take into account the developing economies of the world, which don't have the basic energy infrastructure that we have. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, as you look to a, if, if you pull back and look at a global perspective, um, you know, the, the need for natural gas in particular is probably going to last much longer in those uh, developing economies um, as they develop their essential infrastructure and, and bring themselves up to, uh, you know, the current standards of living. They will need um, that kind of natural gas and, and perhaps coal, um, even for a much longer period than the developed economies will, yes. Yeah, and that, that's a wonderful point, uh, the, the lack of consideration for developing nations. Because when you look at, at who's making all these pronouncements at these global conferences, it does tend to be people from the EU and the United States who are the, the main proponents of all of this, and I know 
there was some uh, pushback from, I think, was it Nigeria mainly, but other African nations to last year's outcome of the COP26 conference that, you know, they believe didn't properly take into account their own needs um, uh, where energy is concerned, right? Yeah, and, and I think, again, that's the problem with imposing a solution here in this country and, and denying the development of natural gas in particular here in this country, even if we don't need the natural gas and, and we intend to transition or evolve more quickly to wind and solar, the rest of the world still needs our natural gas. And that natural gas produced here is probably the cleanest from both a climate and a political perspective of any of the gas in the world right now, yeah. um, especially given all the events that are going on in the world right now. So let's talk a little bit about the environmental purists, as you said, yes. um, that only support wind, solar, and batteries. Um, are, are, are you getting this, is it the same as the climate deniers? Can you expand on who they are and what is their goal? And, and, and then I also, David, maybe we should be talking a little bit about transitioning since there's so much happening right now um, in the world. How is, how is Europe handling a lack of energy? Because they kind of doubled down, doubled down, if you will, on solar and wind. And now they're struggling with not having enough energy. So who are the climate deniers first? And then let's talk about Europe. Yeah, so in our minds, there's two extremes on when you talk about um, a, a, an energy evolution. The climate deniers would say we don't need to do anything. The climate change isn't a problem at all. Um, and the environmental purists are on the opposite extreme where they think it's an existential crisis and the only solution is wind, solar, and batteries. And if you don't support them, you're voted off the island or called a corporate hack. So <laughs> both, both extremes um, create their own problems for reaching our net zero goal, reaching any net zero goal, to be quite honest. Um, and, and we think, in fact, the law of unintended consequences probably makes the environmental purists one of the more harmful positions because it, it is... Uh, probably far more widespread a position than the climate deniers are. Yeah. Hey, Gary, we're up against the hard break, I'm afraid. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back on this when we come back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio, and we'll be right back. Join Rosen Oil and Gas Marketing and Consulting for a couple of great events coming up. On March 21st is the West Texas Clay Shootout at the Midland Shooters Association. Registration starts at 7.30 a.m. with the shooting to begin at 9. Then stay in Midland for the 8th Annual West Texas Oil and Gas Convention, March 23rd to 24th at the Midland County Horseshoe Pavilion. This year's convention will feature inside and outside exhibits, heavy equipment displays, and the taste of the oil patch cook-off. To find out more about both events, go to Roseland Consulting. Com. That's RosalindConsulting.com. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm David Blackman with Kim Bellotto and our special guest, Gary Cruzy with Arbo. Gary, before the break, we were talking about... Uh, you were, you were talking about uh, the difference between or actually the, the kind of uh, dual threat that we have 
where climate change is concerned, uh, posed by both the, the environmental purists, as you, as you call them, and the climate deniers. And I wanted to give you a chance to, to finish up that answer. Sure. I, I think what we're seeing from the environmental purist perspective is because they have taken steps, not only do they say that the main solution or the only solution they will support is uh, wind, solar, and batteries, but they attack almost any other type of energy source um, and, and try to block it in an effort to make essentially the only option available, um, wind, yeah. uh, solar, and batteries. And so they block things like nuclear, they block um, certain hydropower plants. They certainly, the biggest one they have probably uh, created um, is the keep it in the ground movement where they're trying to block essentially all pipelines here in this country to keep oil and gas uh, in the ground because they figure that if you don't have a way to transport it when it comes out, it just won't get produced. And sadly, they've been fairly successful on that front, especially with respect to natural gas. Um, and it's beginning to have unintended consequences, even for the environment that they claim or purport to yeah. want to protect. Um, right. Isn't you know. that one of the big consequences we're seeing in Europe this winter, right? Yes. I mean, Europe refused to produce its own natural gas, and now it spent the last five or six months scrambling to get natural gas from everywhere around the world, and it's created this huge crisis that's, right. that's led to this vacuum that Putin has suddenly stepped into. Anyway, I'm, I didn't mean to introduce, but go ahead. and. No, but, yeah. but you're right, and, and part of the concern is because of, again, an almost um, American-centric viewpoint of the world's energy. Um, you know, you have U.S. senators now claiming that we should get out of the LNG export business and blaming mm -hmm. our own producers for the high gas prices in the Northeast, when that is really a, a, fat, a, a result, really, of decisions made in this country by many of those same politicians about how yeah. to address their energy needs, uh, much in the same way as you discussed in Europe. You know, you, you double down on a particular type of solution and you reduce the supply before you've reduced the demand and that creates a price crunch essentially, um, which is what is happening in the Northeast. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. For our listeners who may not be aware in the Northeast, because uh, uh, the state of New York, essentially, and, and a bunch of these same senators who signed this letter a few weeks ago, uh, haven't allowed any pipelines to be built from the Marcellus Shale 300 miles away into New England, across New York State into New England. Uh, every winter, we see uh, LNG tankers from Russia and Qatar and other countries uh, steaming into Boston Harbor to supply that part of the United States with natural gas. Uh, it's 300 miles away from the biggest gas resource in the world. And uh, I mean, yeah, and so, I mean, obviously that's caused some pretty severe price distortions for, for the consumers up there, right? Yes, very much so. And it's also, again, from the environmental purist perspective, it's creating, um, it's, it's, a, it's causing more problems than it's solving, I guess, in the sense that what's this led to, especially this winter, 
is the use of oil as a, a main source or a primary, a, a large source, I guess I would say, of electric generation there in New England. Um, it, it so much so that they burned in the first 37 days of this year more oil for electric production than they did in the last three years. Um, and so the, the real problem with that is because natural gas, if it were readily available, like you said, if it was available from the Marcellus Shale, um, you know, that would have saved about 600,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide in, in just that 37 days. So they, they have essentially caused more carbon to go into the atmosphere because again, they didn't reduce demand, they just reduced the supply of the needed fuel. So, which is which is of course adding into uh, that we should be lowering air emissions instead of increasing them. You know what, Gary? Let's talk and switch gears and talk about California, the state of California, because mm -hmm. in so, in many ways they are kind of re, they're also creating the same mistakes as Europe. This has been going on for twenty years or so, but we're also seeing Texas struggling with its power grid as well. So some mm. of these ill-advised policies that these uh, legislators are making are impacting us here in the United States just the same. So talk on California and Texas, if you wouldn't mind, on what are their issues and their problems and how well, they're think, looking. Right. California is doing the same sort of thing, which is turning its back on nuclear um, without really having a replacement. And again, that means they are now having to uh, issue requests for proposal for natural gas-fired facilities because they don't have uh, sufficient wind and solar to you know, give them reliable service when those nuclear plants are retired. Um, so you know, they're creating their own reliability problem as well. They also import most or a large portion of their um, power. And so if those other states that from which they import that power begin to focus more on their own domestic needs, I guess, or in-state needs, um, California could be in a world of hurt here in a few years um, without, without sufficient, again, um, resources of energy um, as they retire these forcibly retire, I guess, plants that may not need to retire quite so soon. Yeah, they're, they're retiring their last, their one remaining nuclear plant later this year, aren't they? Or is right. it next yeah. year? Yeah, I think it's 2023, 2024. Okay, like okay. That. Yeah, but it's it's a major plant in a, yeah. in a very key location, I guess I would say. Yeah. And at the same time, they're trying to shut down Aliso Canyon, which is a major gas storage facility that again provides um, reliability services to the uh, gas fired generators in the Los Angeles basin. So again, just these environmental aspects are causing their own problems. Yeah. Right. Well, Gary, I, when we get back from break, I want to talk about Texas too, because okay. they seem like they're on a path for California. But we have to take a quick break. You're All listening right. to in the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. 
SR Trident is a proud sponsor of State of Energy 2022 is coming to the Houston Club in downtown Houston on Thursday, April 21st, starting at 1130 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, and will feature moderator Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior VP of Liquid Pipelines Enbridge, and Bruce Fullen, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets for the State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash state of energy. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash state of energy. Sponsored in part by SR Trident. Welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm David Blackman with our host, Kim Bellotto, and our special guest today, Gary Cruze, the Managing Director at ARBO. Gary, um, we finished last segment talking about the, the, the power grid situation in California and the fact that that state has made all the same mistakes they've made in Europe where energy is concerned. And now I want to move to Texas because I, as a native Texan, I have watched and a guy who was in the government affairs realm for 25 years. I've watched the evolution of our grid here in Texas. And I believe personally that we are making, we're kind of going down this same path in Texas uh, that California has gone down. We're just doing it a lot slower. <laughs> and uh, there was a report this week that ERCOT says that we're, uh, by the end of this year, we're probably going to have more kilowatt hours of capacity of wind and solar power installed on our grid than we do uh, baseload power from natural gas, coal, and, and nuclear. What are the implications? I mean, I, I, and I don't, I, I agree that we, should, you know, wind and solar power are fine sources of energy if they're managed correctly and properly integrated into a diverse power grid. Uh, but aren't there dangers with having so much capacity on a grid like this in Texas, which is, which is where we're heading? Well, I, I think the problem you have, I mean, uh, kudos to Texas, first of all, for having so much wind and solar and for sure. and for building the transmission lines necessary to get it from where right. it is generated to where it's needed. I mean, those are two big issues that a lot of states are not properly tackled. Right, exactly. So, so exactly. let's give credit where credit's due, I guess. Yeah. Um, but really the problem, I think, is making jumping from um, maybe 40% to 100% um, managing that evolution, um, the more you get if you don't have dispatchable sources of power um, creates real risks. I, I think Texas has another risk in the sense that, and, and I'm not sure any of the regional markets have come up with the ideal solution for this, but which is how do you compensate people for the ability to provide power when it's absolutely essential? And, yeah. and, and that, it, the, the, the regional transmission authority that, tra that cracks that nut first, I think, will be a major success. It, it, it just is, is, seems to be out of the reach right now of folks across the country. And so, I think you're right in a sense, until Texas gets that market incentives right, they're going to have problems because there's really, I mean, the wind 
stops blowing, the sun stops shining. But if the gas also has no incentive to be there at that moment to provide the countering, you know, right. source of power, you run into a problem. I yeah, mean, and you talked about dispatchable power a little bit ago, right. dispatchable capacity in a, in a weather emergency like like we faced last February and thankfully right. didn't get to this winter. Um, you know, we've talked to several several experts on our show who, who have offered the opinion that they believe we have a significant lack of dispatchable reserve capacity uh, on the Texas grid. Do you agree with that? Well, I mean, it depends on what it depends on what you mean by uh, dispatchable in the sense that is it is it confirmed to be available when it's absolutely needed? Because right. the problem is if even in a gas a gas fired facility is dispatchable, meaning you can right. command it to run, but if it's relying on just in time gas for its fuel source, that can create a problem like you had in, in winter storm Uri where there were freeze offs and that just in time source is not just in time. So, yes. you know, so there, the, the natural gas industry also needs to work on sort of firming up the, the reliability and, uh, and, you know, of the gas fired facilities as well to make sure they are uh, on demand services no matter what is happening, you know, in the weather or in the gas markets, et cetera. So, so what, what, what kind of things would the, those natural gas facilities need to do to ensure that? Well, some of it is a fight that's been going on probably for the last 15 years between the gas industry and the, and the power industry, which is buying firm capacity on pipelines. Um, most, most markets do not compensate a power plant to have firm capacity on the gas pipeline. They rely on interruptible service or buying it on the capacity release market. Um, the other thing is things that Texas is doing, which is winterizing you know, a lot of the gas wellheads so that that just-in-time uh, inventory is there when it's needed by the power plants. Again, there's no incentive for a producer who can produce the gas the next day to produce it today. So you need to have a market incentive for that producer to be there and, and be ready to produce, you know, when, when the market needs that gas. So... Gary, one quick question before we end the show, and it's I want to take us back to the Marcellus Shale, a yeah. very large natural gas play, and, yes. and basically is is helping or should be helping more of the New England states. And because of some of the decisions that have been made there that you talked about earlier, um, they're really having a lot of issues with delivering or having access to natural gas. It's right here in the United States. Give me some examples of, of what you're referring to when you're talking about the problem that, that they have by having lack of pipelines. Well, so, I mean, in essence, what they have created is a constraint, especially during the winter, where they don't have enough pipeline capacity to serve the, the heating load for their um, homes in the winter and all of the uh, natural gas fired facilities that they have. And so, and, and they've done that through a couple means. One is retiring nuclear, building more natural gas fired facilities, but then essentially blocking pipelines um, like Constitution, Ned, you know, any number of other pipelines that were designed to feed the Northeast markets 
by blocking those pipelines from reaching those markets, you've essentially constrained the supply of gas into the region, but not reduced the demand for gas in the region. In fact, you probably increased the demand for gas in the region. Yeah. So in, in, in constrained situations, they end up paying exorbitant prices or going without it, really. Very good. Well, Gary, we do want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. Very, very interesting topics. I hope that uh, helped our listeners understand a little bit more when we talk about the energy evolution or energy transition. It's quite complicated <laughs> in yeah, different parts of the world and even here in the United States as well. And we look forward to having you back on the show. Uh, but tell our listeners where they can go to get information on Arvo and if they want to look up some of the data that you produce. Sure, um, they can go to www.goarbo.com and we have a blog on that website that they can access to read any of our uh, research pieces that we release publicly. Um, similar types of research pieces are issued twice a week to our subscribers as well. Well, in closing, I sure wish that some of our journalists that write such horrible articles would review some of the research and hopefully write some more accurate articles about what's really going on in the energy evolution field. Gary, thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to having you back on the show in the near future. Thank you for having us. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.